I'm always kind of stunned at the mercy of a God who speaks to us. And if that is not miraculous, it's because we don't live in a world in which God is silent. That would be a terrifying world. And not only does God speak to us, but he speaks to us in a language that we can understand. It's not as if he's desperately trying to tell us something and we just fail to understand him. And we've all been in that desperate dilemma when someone speaks a different language than us. And God is more merciful still because not only does he speak in a language that we can understand, but he speaks in a way that we can understand. It's not high ivory tower language. It's it's common language. And he's more merciful still. I hope you can see where I'm going. It's more merciful still because he doesn't tell us things that we don't need to know. He tells us and reveals to us the things we need to know, desperately need to know who he is, who we are, what's wrong, and how to make our way back to God. And he shows a deeper mercy still, and that he's shown forth his son, Jesus, the word of God made flesh to dwell among us, to exemplify, to fulfill this word that he has spoken. So not only have we heard it, we have seen it. That is a great mercy. And Jesus is more merciful still in that when he's here on this earth, he expounds The words of the Father. And in one case, someone asked him this question, and a great question. They said, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And again, if that's not a great question to you, it's because every waking moment of your life, you don't have to live under 617 commandments. And if you did, I think the first question that would come to our mind is, okay, what's the greatest one, right? Let's be honest about what we can do here. What's the greatest one? That we need to be concerned with. And that's a practical question because we can hardly keep 617 bits of information in our brain or or commandments, much less do them. And so what is going to give us that tangible direction in our day-to-day lives from moment to moment to say, what do we need to do? And Jesus answers like this. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. Now that we can keep in our minds, right? We can put that on a t-shirt or something. That's something that we can take as something tangible that gives us direction in our day-to-day life. And of course, the law expands on what loving God and loving neighbor does. And I think in this passage that we're in today, we could ask a similar question. This is the question that I, that I want to underline our teaching today. And, and that question is, what does enduring faith look like between the cross and the crown? Let me put it uh, in a more Appalachian way. So what now? So what now? What's next? What should this look like? And, and I'll tell you why that's an important question for us. Because for right, wrong, and different, we romanticize things. They're always better in our mind than they actually are. And praise God, we've had baptisms. We've had people come to faith in this church. And right now, it's kind of a celebration. The Lord's moved your heart. It's an exciting time. But then it'll get quiet. And then what does that look like on day 30? On one year? 
10 years, 30 years of enduring faith. That's a different story. And we romanticize what it's going to be and what it's not going to be. So we need someone to, to tell us, what's this going to look like? What should this look like? Am I doing this right? So that's more the question than I have. This, does, this doesn't seem right. And so that's going to be the underlying context that I, that I want to put in this, this message today. In the context of Timothy... This is Paul's last letter to his protege, Timothy. Paul's in prison in Rome shortly after the events of Acts 28. Paul has seen the writing on the wall. He knows that his end is upon him. And so this is his last hurrah to Timothy. Timothy is to be his, take up the mantle of Paul to continue to plant churches. And Timothy is an elder in the church of Ephesus at the moment. And in this letter, in this passage, he's going to tell Timothy three things that, that what enduring faith should look like. And, and I think that's what we draw from it. Three things. Number one, there's three imperatives. And there's actually four, but there's mainly three. The fourth is to think up on these things. But he's going to say in verse one, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. In verse two, he's going to say, entrust this message to others who will entrust it to others. And in verse 3, he's going to say, share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ. Be strengthened by grace and trust the message and share in suffering. So let's look at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace as in Christ Jesus. The then or therefore is there because in the first chapter he's already said as much. To not be ashamed of the gospel. To continue in suffering. And then he's listed certain characters who have fallen away. Therefore, continue to fan the flame, so to speak, in, in verse 6 and 7. Continue to fan the flame and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we want to think about that construction a little bit. Because it's interesting. You, there's something actively that you need to do. But you're strengthened by something you have no control over, so to speak. Right? There's an active thing that you do, but you're strengthened by something that's outside of you. For my Appalachian friends, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Thank you. Yes. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the scenario we're talking about here. And if I asked you, are you strengthened by the water or are you drinking it? The answer would be... Yes, yes, the source of that strength is outside of you, but there's still something that you need to do. So be strengthened, passively strengthened by the grace, and yet there's something that we need to do. I like that it says, by the grace. We are strengthened not by anything that we choose, which we're tempted at, on every turn to be strengthened by anything and everything. We're strengthened, we're to be strengthened by the grace, and this grace isn't some special grace, some, some magical, mysterious grace. It's the grace that comes from being in Jesus. And I want to tell you why this is immensely encouraging for us. It's immensely encouraging for us. Because it's accessible to all those who are in Jesus at the moment that they are in Jesus. You don't have to pray hard. You don't have to live righteously or, or meet some spiritual 
level to where you can receive this grace. It's not a special grace, and only some have it and some don't. The water is there. Come and drink. So that's immensely encouraging for us. Don't have to be smart enough. Don't have to pray enough. Have enough faith. So how are we then strengthened by this grace that comes from being in Jesus? That statement is very popular in Paul's letters. It symbolizes our union with Christ. So how are we strengthened by the grace that comes from the union that we have with Christ? I have four points to this. Christ's performance, Christ's position, Christ's promises, and Christ's people. So his performance, his position, his promises, and his people, that's how we're strengthened by the grace that comes from being in Jesus. Let's look at the first one, Christ's performance. How are we strengthened by grace? From the work that Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. There is, therefore, no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. There's not a foe that we have to defeat. Death has already been vanquished. That's not on our table anymore. A right understanding of the gospel is a strengthening grace for us. Have you ever watched a, like a historical movie in which the, you know the ending or a movie you've already watched before? So we're not on the edge of our seat during the movie. We're not having to guess what happens. It's fun to watch it with our children or, or, with, or with my wife. My wife doesn't take risks like that. She, she needs to know the end of the movie before we start the movie. And she will ask me if I've watched it. And she'll say, if you don't tell me if someone dies, I will have to look this up. It's, it's not a risk that she can take. But we know the ending. History has been written. A period has been placed. And that is a strengthening grace for us. That's a strengthening grace for us. And that right understanding of the gospel and God's sovereignty in it. I love this quote from Henry Martin. He's a a missionary to the country of India. And, And that grace that comes from Christ's performance made him write something like this. You've maybe heard this quote. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. Now that is a strengthening grace. That is confidence for the believer based upon Christ's performance. I'm immortal until God's work for me to do is done. So we're strengthened from the performance of Christ, but also his position The Lord Jesus is our great high priest. He's someone who understands us. He prays for us. And he gives a special grace. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. And you've heard this passage many times. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and and in fact has gone always a step beyond what we have been tempted, and yet without sin. So if that's true, let us with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. When we need 
grace in, in the situations in life, we want someone who's walked where we've walked. We want someone to say, I know exactly what you need, what you've gone through, and I can help. That is a strengthening grace. And that comes from being in union with Christ as our high priest. And then we're strengthened by Christ's promises. The very great and precious promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ. As we read the scriptures, every promise of scripture for the righteous, for God's people, is fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. And that's encouraging because it's not fulfilled in us. Right? When we read the scriptures and promises for the righteous, for God's people... One, we're prone to doubt. Two, we're not righteous. We're not holy. We're not the recipient of those saved for Christ. For, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, and we utter amen to God to His glory, because Jesus is the fulfillment of those, and if we are in Him, we, are the we receive those Promises. We have a great inheritance, as Ephesians would say. And Colossians 3 puts it best. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that is a strengthening grace for enduring faith. To know that whatever the Father feels for the Son, He feels for us. He can't love us any more or any less than He loves His Son. All the promises that we see in Scripture, though we might be prone to doubt or us, we fling ourselves to Christ in which we know they find their yes and amen in. And that is a strengthening grace for enduring faith. And finally, Christ's people. Christ's people. The patient Persistent, prayerful, present people of God. It's a lot of alliteration there for you. God's people are designed to walk with us, pray for us, encourage us, rebuke us, love us. Hebrews a book mainly about not falling away and people who are having to entertain the question, is Jesus worth it? The antidote to that question is to preach the supremacy of Christ, but it's also to use the people of God. Because there is this crisis called discouragement, called unbelief, called doubt, and the antidote is to preach the supremacy of Christ and encourage the people of God to walk together. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what's the solution then? What do we do in verse 13? But exhort one another day after day, every day, as long as it's called today. So now it's urgent. It's a crisis that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we Indeed, hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it's interesting later in Hebrews 10, a passage that's talking about the assurance of salvation. What immediately follows that is the people of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. God's going to hold up his end of the bargain. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if that was true then, it's certainly true now because the day is that much nearer. Christ's people are a strengthening grace for us. Do you believe that? You know, some of us don't. Some of us don't. And when our faith hits that wall, we kind of come to the emergency room of faith, so to speak, whether that's ourself, with a friend, with a counselor, with a pastor. We, we hit that wall. We come to the emergency room and, and our doctors or nurses in here can, can, can attest that probably nine times out of ten, we could have avoided the emergency room, right? We probably could have avoided the emergency room or that life-saving surgery if we just went to our regular checkup, lived healthily, made good decisions. And when people come to that emergency room of faith and hit that wall, you almost want to walk them through these, these things, these, these very simple but very powerful strengthening graces that the Lord has given us that comes from being in Jesus. You want to say, well, what's your understanding of the gospel? Maybe that's, that's what's wrong here. You don't understand Christ's performance for you. Or, or what's your prayer life look like? Are you communicating to this great high priest and, and depending on him for the, the grace that he gives in time of need? Are you depending on your own strength? What's your time in the word look like? Do you know the very great and precious promises which find their yes and amen in Jesus? If you don't, you're not going to be strengthened by them. You have to come to the water and drink. What's your time with the people of God look like? Are you fellowshipping with the saints? Because we can't do the one another's of Scripture at home. We can't, we can't do that streaming a service online. Amen? We've got to be here. I've got to be able to see you, to walk with you. To call you out on some stuff. And likewise to me. So go to your regular checkup. Go to the regular and common graces that the Lord gives us for enduring faith. Let's look at verse 2 in Timothy's responsibility to entrust the message. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now we need to talk about a couple things. Timothy's call is not going to be the same as ours. Right? We're not a protege of Paul. We're not an elder in Ephesus. We're not called to go and church plant and take the gospel to the immediate area of Rome and Ephesus and, and so on and so forth. And we're not called to raise up the next generation of pastors in the same way Timothy was. Some of us might be called in that, but we're not all universally called to that. So we need to, we need to state that at the beginning. And, and we also need to distinguish between evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is telling and people hearing. Telling and hearing, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Preaching the gospel. Discipleship is intentionality. Jesus preaches his gospel to many, and yet he only has 12 disciples, and of those 12, he has three. 
should say of those 12, he also has one who doesn't really belong there. So it requires intentionality. And specifically this word that we find in here, entrust. We need to reflect on that word for a moment. To entrust something. What does it mean if I entrusted something to you? Or someone entrusted something to me? It implies responsibility. It implies a duty. A mission. That we're to care for. Guard. Do something with. And I think probably many people in this room... Think that they've been told something. Think that they've heard something that they can choose whether to do with or not. But I'm here by the Lord's grace to tell you that if you are in Jesus, you have been entrusted. You have been entrusted with a teaching, with a message. And that does not require no obligation on your end. You have a responsibility to, be, to continue to be entrusted with this message and to entrust this message to others. You have a duty. There are things at stake. You are entrusted with the message. And the Great Commission is to not to go and preach the gospel. It is to go and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we need to make that distinction. And I think reverential or, or, or with a certain fear of, uh, or sense of trepidation, this the same word is used in a parable that Jesus used. And he explains it to his disciples in Luke 12. And he says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating, but a beating nonetheless. And then he says this, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much. They will demand the more. Guys, we live in America. We have a translation for every day of the week and month and probably year. We have been entrusted to such a level that the responsibility is all the more grave. Much will be required of you who's been entrusted with this message. Be faithful. Be faithful. So many of us, too, are recruiting followers on social media or in our workplace. How many of us are intentionally entrusting this message to others and making disciples? We should reflect on that. That's what enduring faith looks like. Being strengthened by grace. Entrusting the message to others who will then entrust the message. This, this teaching that's once for all delivered by and to the saints. And I think that takes place in our homes, in our marriages, in our church. That's how we entrust the message to others. With intentionality. And finally, I want to spend the bulk of our time in verse 3 and following. Because this is probably the most difficult part of this passage. I think we all get that we're to be strengthened in grace and... And trust the message to others. But share in suffering. Let's, let me read that verse. Verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
That's a weird sentiment, is it not? To ask others to share in suffering. It kind of sounds like misery loves company, doesn't it? And that's not a nice thing to ask somebody to share in your suffering, although you would want it and it is a nice thing to do. So is what's happening here, is Paul projecting a pessimistic or negative view of the faith? Is he making some prophetic vision about everyone's faith that they will endure suffering? Or is it something else? And of course, there's other scriptures here to to help us. Multiple times in the New Testament, Paul says and other authors say, share in Christ's sufferings or suffer as a Christian or share in suffering for the gospel or share simply in his suffering. And I want to posit that this is a candid, yes, but beautiful sentiment for us to embrace. And not a pessimistic or negative view of the faith to share in suffering. So let's reflect on that for a moment. So first, suffering is necessary for existence in this fallen world. Suffering is necessary for if you want to exist in this fallen world, suffering is inevitable. It is necessary and it exists because sin exists. We're born into this world with bodies, souls and in a world that is under the curse of Genesis three. We all die. We all get sick. We all feel pain. We weep. We toil and we all fall short of the glory of God, meaning We're also responsible for those things as well. In every path of life, we need to hear this morning, every path of life that we would take in this life involves suffering. It involves suffering. And so the question really comes down to timing, distribution, and the experience of the suffering we're going to have. When's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Furthermore, we find that how we justify the suffering will determine how we actually experience the suffering. So the justification is absolutely essential. Let me give an example of this. People who work out go on a diet. Right? There's a level of suffering, visible suffering. You might feel like you're dying, and yet these people are doing this with a smile on their face and happy to do it, and they do it again and again and again. And I guess, you know, the proof's in the pudding, but there is a loss experience. There is a suffering endured, and yet they find that the justification, the end, the goal, the reward for the suffering they will endure actually makes them positively experience the suffering that they're going through. So that they will do it again and again. Every path that we take will involve suffering. In fact, the path that we choose to take, we do so because we've decided that whatever it leads to will justify what we're going to experience. So if every path involves suffering... It's much better then. Let us focus then on the goal, the reward, the justification, and, the, and, and its cause, right? Namely, sin. Every path involves suffering. Whether that suffering is now, is later, it's numbed, delayed, earthly, temporal, spiritual, eternal. 
It's unavoidable because sin exists. And so whatever path that we take has to deal with the reality of sin. Because if we don't deal with the reality of sin and just spend our lives trying to manage earthly suffering, we will reap. You need to hear, we will reap an eternal, conscious torment of suffering because of sin. Because that's what we deserve, because God is holy. God is holy. I wonder if you've thought about your suffering as a commodity. Suffering is a commodity. And every path costs some. And when the New Testament authors ask us to share in the suffering of Christ, they're asking us to invest our suffering in the only thing that will yield an eternal return. And the Bible talks about it in these terms as well. Jesus says things like the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, so sell all that you have for it. Better to lose your life and save your soul. What profit is it if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Better to go to heaven with one eye and one hand than hell with both. Don't fear man who can kill the body, but fear God who can cast the body and soul into hell. So why is it still then to best Or seek your soul's greatest good. That path that deals with the reality of sin. That path that leads to wholeness and communion with God. To Him who every fiber and atom of our being is meant to depend on. To flee to Christ who makes an end of all suffering through the suffering on the cross. And that prepares us for an eternal weight of glory so that when we suffer, we might mourn and yet rejoice. Consider it light and momentary afflictions in the eyes of eternity. And the only reason that Paul's able to say that is because the end is Christ and he's worth everything. Every path involves suffering. So take the path that deals with reality of sin. And has the greatest reward. If suffering is a commodity. At least share in the sufferings of Christ. At least get a return on your investment. Don't make a poor investment. Share in the sufferings of Christ. And how do we do that? As a good soldier. As a good soldier. So what scenarios or examples could be likened to ours? What can be the tangible things that we can take with us day after day to help us live out an enduring faith? Similar to love God and love neighbor. What are some examples, some scenarios? Because there's bad examples out there, right? So what are some good examples? How can we liken ourselves from, from now between the cross and the crown? Because it's a long time. Can be. We need realistic expectations. So think of it like a soldier. Verse 4. Think of it like a soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So this is a great illustration. Because the nature of the relationship in this verse is a soldier with a captain. His aim is to please him. So then, what's his response? He can't get involved in civilian pursuits. And that's... 100% 100% relatable to us. Whether we've, we've been in combat, whether we've you know, seen a movie about combat, they're not worried about the things that we're worried about right now. Right? 
Their one sole worry is to make it out of their life. And to do so, they need to please the one who enlisted them. They need to obey their captain. Communication is key. So obey your captain. Because your life depends on it and the lives of your buddies depend on it. And if everyone's obeying the captain, then maybe we make it out of this thing alive. And again, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about how we share in suffering. Because the reality is, soldiers get shot at. They go hungry. They aren't always comfortable. They don't always get eight hours of sleep. They have regimens. They do tons of mundane things. But a soldier has a mission. And he has a captain, and he can't afford distractions. And how bizarre would it be for a soldier to be told one thing and to come back with another? Because of what's at stake. We're at war. There's a conflict. And so what does enduring faith look like? It looks like a soldier who wakes up every day and wants to please his captain. We have a captain. So in verse 5, we move on to an athlete. So share in suffering as a good soldier. Share in suffering like an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This is kind of a weird expression. Of the three, this is probably the most difficult one to think through. An athlete only wins if he competes according to the rules. So the nature of the relationship here is there's an athlete striving for a prize, a crown, glory. There's a glory to be had. There's laurels to be won. We typically think of glory as a bad thing, as selfish, but glory to God is a great thing. It is a weighty thing. It is a heart-explosive thing to share in this glory, to share in the prize that is Jesus. Jesus is this... Is, is the prize. He's what we will get for all of our endurance, all of our training. And so we need to compete according to the rules, the unspoken rules and the spoken rules. The unspoken rules. An athlete every day has to wake up. He has to eat the same things. He has to train. He has to discipline his body. He can't do everything, go everywhere. He has to learn the game. He, he watches training tapes. Right? We're in the moment uh, in time that the Olympics are going on. They have the Olympics. And the Olympics is such a tragic thing to watch because there's people who have dedicated their whole life to one moment. And they either receive crazy laurels or they're devastated that all their life has gone to this thing and they've, they've failed. They've failed. All of, it's the same with us, right? All of our life for one moment that will last for an eternity. And so we have to compete according to the rules. We can't expect to show up on game day and win the game. We have to compete according to the rules, which means we don't get to define the parameters of the game. We don't get to define whether we will suffer or not suffer. We must compete according to the rules, spoken and unspoken. And then finally, a farmer. This last image of a farmer. I think I relate most to this one because in the first, a soldier, there is a victory to be had. 
There, there is life at stake, survival. In the second, an athlete, there's laurels and glory. But in the third is a farmer with a harvest to reap. Let me read it and I'll, I'll continue on. It is the, in verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So there's a farmer with a harvest to reap. And so what does that look like day to day, though? What does that look like? Farmers work towards something. I think this is the reason why I like it, because they actually receive something that is pleasurable, that is good, that is life-sustaining, that gives them life and wholeness. This is what the farmer works toward, right? You can't eat a crown. You can't eat a victory, so to speak. But the farmer works towards something that he will enjoy, something that is pleasurable. And how does it relate to suffering? Well, as you know, farmers have routines. It's, it's nasty. It's dirty. It involves, you know, animals. They have dates and schedules and setbacks. They have to plant, they have to till, they have to guard, they have to water, and they have to wait and wait and wait. And they take something that doesn't look like the thing that they're going to get, so it's not intuitive of what they're doing. And if you were farming for the very first time in the history of mankind, you would think this is never going to work. This is never going to work. I take something like this, I till the ground, I put it in the ground, I pat it, I water it, and I wait. And it comes out... And it doesn't, still doesn't look like the thing that you're going to eat, right? It's still not corn, right, if it's corn. And it grows, and it waits, and waits. And people, the whole time that it was growing, would probably call you crazy. And then one day, it sprouts, and then you can, of course, harvest it and eat and enjoy it. Enduring faith looks like that. That's what enduring faith looks like. It looks like doing the things, planting the seeds, watering the ground, and waiting. And waiting. And it's not intuitive that one thing leads to another. But we have to submit to certain laws and rules of the universe that that's how you grow corn. And so what do we do? We plant. We water. And we wait. In all these, the reward is always greater than the suffering that's endured. That's the point. That's the point of these illustrations. They all take time. They all take diligence and patience. So as we close, we want to think about what does enduring faith look like from the cross to the crown? Well, it looks like being strengthened by grace that comes from being in Jesus. It looks like entrusting this message to others as they entrust it and you being entrusted under the word of God. And it looks like sharing in the suffering of Christ, enduring suffering. That will have a good reward. So how do we make this tangible for us in our day-to-day life? We do that by every day waking up and saying, I need to be like a soldier. Today I need to be like a soldier. I can't afford any distractions. I have a mission. I have a captain. And unless what I'm doing is driven towards the mission, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. It's that simple. I'm a soldier with a captain. Let's please the captain. We need to wake up like an athlete. I need to compete according to the rules. I don't get to make up my day. I don't get to make up the universe. I am not God. God is God. 
There is a crown to be had, laurels to be won that will be glorious. I need to discipline my body for the purpose of godliness. I need to have a dead set focus on the prize. I need to set my eyes on the author and perfecter of faith so that I might not be entangled in the sin which so easily besets us on either side. We need to be patient like a farmer. We need to be patient like a farmer who waits for his crops and every day planting good seeds, protecting, watering, and so forth. Looking to faith for things unseen, but eternally secure for something so truly good, so truly beautiful and pleasurable and life-giving that no earthly treasure, no earthly suffering could compare. So I will faithfully toil today. I will do the things. I will plant the seeds and wait for the harvest. This is what enduring faith looks like from the cross to the crown. And my prayer is that you run with me. Run with me in this race. Whatever it takes. The Lord is faithful. And he's worth everything.